0: Listeners, you are listening to Musical Headwaters, a podcast where we ask composers about their creative process, their sources of inspiration, and essentially what makes them tick. I'm your host, Diane, and this is a podcast from the Contemporary Art Music Project Camp team. Today on the podcast, we have composer Benjamin D. Whiting. Ben is a composer, an educator, a developer, as well as an innovator. He is currently serving as the postdoctoral instructor of electronic music at the University of Chicago. He is a composer of electroacoustic music as well as acoustic works. His works are frequently performed in festivals worldwide, and he has also given numerous talks in these festivals. He is also a co-founder and co-executive director of Knoll State Inc an organization that paves the way for innovative growth of electronic and electroacoustic music. Ben, I've known since, um, I guess, I don't know. How long have we known each other, Ben?
1: We've known each other since
0: 2018. 2018, yeah. And it was through a mutual friend of ours, um, a great, great friend of yours as well, Melody Chua, who you have a... Uh, organization together with called null state um and yeah so that's how we got to know each other where are you coming from ben
1: so today i'm hailing from chicago illinois in fact we're in the middle of this uh wicked winter storm where we're uh we already yeah. have about a foot of snow accumulated so and it's looking like oh, it's geez. only going to get uh worse overnight so yeah i'm uh I'm nice and toasty in my Hyde Park apartment.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah, the Chicago weather. I kind of miss it, though, that ferocious wind. That's right. You went to a Northwestern. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back in another so life. You're,
1: you're, you're well acquainted with uh, Lake Michigan and all the lake effect snow. And yeah,
0: for sure. The
1: wind and everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How how are you liking it in Chicago?
1: Oh, it's great! Yeah, I'm uh, mm. I'm here for a year uh, on a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Chicago, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, taking ch- taken charge of the Chime Studio. Am organizing Chime Fest 2022. We actually had to postpone it because of the uh, the Omicron spike, but uh, seems like we're it's on for June, so. Uh, Yeah. So we're busy preparing for that. And of course, teaching and composing.
0: Nice. So will your works be uh, presented in the Chimes Festival in Chicago?
1: Yeah. So uh, in fact, Melody will be coming over with our sensor augmented flute, the chaos flute, and she's going to be playing a piece of mine that's uh, was in fact premiered in 2018, Human Sequencer. And she'll also be performing a brand new piece for the Chaos Flute that I wrote called uh, V.
0: Nice. Yeah, so for for our listeners, Melody Chua is the, our mutual friend um, whom Ben also has an organization with called No State. And um, that's, that's how I actually got to know you and your work as well from hearing Melody perform um, with Chaos Flute. And uh, yeah, would you like to tell us a little bit about Chaos Flute? It's a very innovative project and endeavor that you guys have been doing for years now, I, I assume.
1: It's hard to believe, but yeah, it's been over half yeah. a decade. Um, oh my gosh. So, yeah, so the the Chaos Flute is a project that, uh, that both Melody and I began during the spring semester of 2016, it was both of our last semesters at the University of Illinois. I was um, I was still ABD at the time, but uh, I was just working on finishing up my dissertation and Melody was finishing her dual bachelor degrees. Uh, we'd already collaborated on some projects in the past. And so we thought it would be just due to me beginning my journey into programming in Super Collider, which is a programming language that's uh, geared toward algorithmic music composition and uh, even more importantly, digital signal processing and and synthesis. And Melody being a a tremendous flautist and also with uh, some programming and electronics chops of her own, uh, we decided to start working on this uh on this set of sensor augmentations for the chaos flute it uh it really it was kind of this uh project it, it was if you had seen the initial prototype where we had like piezoelectric uh transducers just literally velcroed <laughs> to her flute <laughs> and uh we had um We didn't even have motion sensors at that point. Uh, it was just really, we just had the, the piezos and like a lavalier, mic just being fed into super collider and then running processes that I had programmed, um, for the very first pieces I wrote for our instrument. In fact, both melody and I, uh, started this habit so that every time we had like this new iteration of our instrument or really our sensor augmentation of it, um, we would, test out the capabilities or like the new capabilities we would introduce by writing pieces for it. And the augmentations themselves went from, like I was saying, just piezoelectric transducers to a nine axis motion sensor with airflow sensor. Um, This key switchboard that's uh, that melody worked really hard on making it uh, ergonomically designed. So a flautist can easily, uh, you know hit a button or toggle a toggle switch and it's very small it's battery powered too the earliest versions were wired but but now it's powered by a battery uses bluetooth to connect to a computer and um and yeah and, and it just attaches to any orchestral uh a standard flute or a, a C flute if you will um and yeah and that's just it's it's been a project that's been a uh, a labor of love. Granted, Melody has been working really hard on the, you know, she's, she's in charge of the hardware uh, side of things. And, um, and yeah, thanks to her that we've been able to really uh, uh, refine the instrument. And at some point, in fact, it's been our plan to release it uh, under an open source license so that, I mean, we would build Uh, chaos flutes to order but also people would be able to like download the software that powers it um, which is my role in the project and then uh you know could grab the schematics and 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 the files needed to like if they wanted to 3d print the attachment and they can essentially build their own because we at the end of the day our goal is to democratize electronics in music and Allow as many people as possible who want to experiment with adding electronics into their compositional improvisational workflow that opportunity.
0: It's so incredible. <laughs> um, and would this eventually? I I know because it's been on the flute. And are you also thinking about eventually expanding it for other instruments as well with the same concepts, same ideas, and? perhaps making something that's applicable on other instruments.
1: Yeah. It's a question that we actually get asked a lot. Uh, If I had a nickel for every time I asked, would there (laughs) be a chaos saxophone? And the answer (laughs) is, excuse me. I mean, I never want to say, you know, never, but it's really not on the horizon for us right now. I feel like, um, you know, with, With her, with Melody uh, in the middle of her PhD studies and with me, like, just like really focusing also on my academic career that we're, you know, we're taking our time with it. And, uh, and both of us are also kind of branching out into different kinds of experimentation and and interests. So I have a feeling that the chaos flute, at least for now, will be the only um, application, but who knows, We, we might change our mind within a year.
0: Right. Right. Well, one, I'm wondering, did you always start with electronic music or did you ever stem from kind of more, let's say, basic (laughs) or simple forms of composition like acoustic writing and then perhaps added on the electroacoustic part later on?
1: Are, are you speaking specifically of pieces I write for instrument and electronics, or do you mean just in my compositional output in general?
0: Um, in general, like for, from the beginning of your composition life, were were there. At the beginning of my,
1: yeah. In fact, for, I would say. It's still the majority of my compositional uh, career, so to speak, uh, that I've been exclusively an acoustic composer. It wasn't until my doctoral studies at the University of Illinois that I really started getting into electronic music composition. And then it just took off. Um, but you know what really attracted me to co- electronic music and just the all of the possibilities that it uh, that it entails and just the method of composition itself, I think really just stems from my childhood. Um, When I was very young, my, uh, my parents couldn't help but notice that for some odd reason, I was two years old and my favorite toy in the whole world was a four function calculator. Like they would just give me a calculator (laughs) on like a long road trip and I would not cry or scream or ask (laughs) for me there yet or anything like that.
0: I would just be
1: mesmerized by it. And then from there I developed an ability to be able to do any kind of math in my head. I don't really have that ability to the same degree anymore, but I think just my, my toddler mind was, it was easier to pick up on patterns. So my father Uh who, you know, has a a significant interest in mathematics himself thought it would be, it was just, it was a prime opportunity to latch onto it. So from like the age of six, uh, he was drilling me in algebra. Uh, He gave me his calculus textbooks from his university days and he started me on computer programming. And so I was actually writing computer programs when I was six years old. I mean, I I started in basic and then moved to assembly, but Um, but yeah, I mean, now granted my programming kind of fell by the wayside when I started getting into music, but then, you know, I got into the university of Illinois and with the electronic music curriculum there, uh, which involves also computer programming, uh, it just, it just clicked for me. It just, it, to me, that was like, I could finally merge like the love of my childhood with like the love of my teenage and adult years. So from there, I just started composing electronic music, but I still compose uh, like thoroughly acoustic music too. Maybe not as often anymore, but I still do write in that that idiom.
0: Yeah, so it became like a combination of two big interests of yours, music and I guess computer programming. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, computer
1: program. I mean, not all of my electronic music deals with programming, but certainly Mm -hmm. I would say all of my recent efforts have involved computer programming, at least to some degree.
0: Is your father also a computer programmer? Um...
1: Uh,
0: He is, although uh, he
1: shifted from programming in his earlier years to uh networking his his real passion is actually getting computers to talk to each other and wow. um he's been very successful at it too uh, so yeah he uh when he was programming oddly he was a pilot in the air force at the time and that's how he was able to get some significant promotions he was uh writing new software that would handle like you know flight plans and the like that the military adopted and they're like, hey, would you like a significant bump in rank and salary? And, of course, he would take it. But then
0: uh, wow. he left
1: the military when he was still pretty young. He was – was he even 40 yet? But, yeah, so he uh, retired from the military and then just devoted his uh, his efforts to first computer programming to some degree, but really computer networking. And, and that's just something that he, he just absolutely adores.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean – For someone who has very little knowledge in in regards to computer programming, it's very fascinating to hear that you had that since you were a little kid and also that it was taught to you from six years old on. That's incredible to me. (laughs) (laughs) So for you, it's a very natural language and, and a very comfortable environment to be in.
1: Yeah, in fact, it's probably one of the reasons uh why I actually take to text-based languages more than visual languages. Um, for you know, for those who may be listening and, and who do compose electroacoustic music, they may be quite comfortable in, you know, using something like Pure Data or Max, which uses like a graphical uh interface. And you basically you you basically like uh construct the signal flow between objects and it, it's it's you know, supposed to be more intuitive, but for me, it, it was always actually more of a stumbling block because I'm not very much a visual person. I mean, I love visual art, but as far as like actually thinking things out visual, visually, I don't typically do that. But uh, being able to talk to a computer using text and using words, like using human-like language, was always feels uh, very natural to me. And yeah, I think I I think that's in large part due to the fact that I've been doing that for almost all my life.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's a language you speak. hmm Yeah. I do. Uh, speaking of which, that brings me to the first piece that I would like to introduce, and you need to help me out here with how to pronounce it. Um, it's a piece you wrote in 2015 called Illumina Arabiodopsis Taliana. Did I say that right?
1: That's really close. That's
0: okay. <laughs> I was close. I was close. Yeah,
1: It's Illumina Arabidopsis Taliana.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Arabidopsis Taliana. Okay.
1: You could just say There's Illumina. <laughs>
0: Illumina. Yeah, my first question is what does that mean?
1: <laughs> Light or like, you know, illuminate. So since yeah. uh the, the rest of the title uses uh it, you know it's all in Latin. Um yeah. but uh so I figured that since it deals specifically with the a uh, arabidopsis leaf um, since I was using Latin in the title anyway why not just go all the way so I added the imperative mm-hmm. of illuminate and there you go
0: you mentioned leaf mm-hmm. I, I it has to, uh, the inspiration has to do with science and biology um yeah would you, would, what is this leaf and how, how did that inspire this work for you? Well,
1: now the leaf itself, the Arabidopsis leaf is not anything that's particularly uh, noteworthy to anyone outside of biology and outside of genomic biology in particular. So what led me to this piece is actually a different collaborative effort between me and a genomic biologist back when I was at the university of Illinois. Um, her name was Allele, or was her name is Aleel K. Grennan and she'd go by cat. And, um, we were paired together for this event called the sound of science that the composers, the student body composers, and the genomic biologists, um, got together and thought it would be a great idea because there's a lot of interest in, in people who pursue the scientific arts uh, in the visual and musical arts. Um, and a lot of people don't really think about this, I feel, when um, and it's easy enough for even you know, people who are in academic fields like teaching music in a university setting like me to like, really take for granted. But there is you know, a lot of interest in the arts outside of people who practice it. And there was just there were just a number of people in that particular department who wanted to collaborate with composers. So we put together this uh, event. Each composer was paired with a genomic biologist, and I got, I got I, luck of the draw had me pick cat and sh- her experiment was working on producing uh, genetic mutants or just mutants in general of an arabidopsis leaf so what she would do is that she would breed strains of the leaf that would have uh like a different kind of makeup with regard to chloroplasts so she would either have like a leaf that would have more chloroplasts uh a leaf that would have Um, larger and fewer chloroplasts. And as I recall, there was one leaf that had like basically one humongous chloroplast. And the point is, and she was comparing all of her mutants with a wild type, like a natural leaf. And the the point was that that she was working on uh, trying to optimize photosynthesis in plants with the end goal of, of being able to produce plants that would be able to take more advantage of sunlight and ideally grow in less hospitable conditions. So to to help with agriculture. And why the Arabidopsis leaf is so special to genomic biologists and granted, this is coming from somebody with no training in genomic biology. So if anybody listening to this thinks I'm completely off base, I, I apologize. But it's my understanding that the Arabidopsis leaf is particularly uh, friendly with regards to genetic modification. So it become, it's easier to test out certain things with that leaf than it is with, with other kinds of plants. So uh, that's one of the reasons why it's so special and Alleles project and, and working with the data and, 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 oh, so let me take a step back. So at a certain point when she had uh, finished a a particular phase of her research, she presented me with basically just a bunch of raw data. And so I was trying to sift through it and try to come up with like meaningful connections between the data and and music and what, how I could represent it musically without it being just a soulless sonification of data. Um, And I also didn't want to take so many liberties that that the data is lost completely. So um, so from that data, I was able to engage in sound design. So the rate of photosynthesis in the leaf was uh, informed the shapes of the sounds, like the synthesized sounds specifically. So uh, it would inform the number of harmonics with regard to like the makeup of the sound. It would, uh, it would inform the shape of each of those harmonics to give it its articulation, you know, some kind of a sustain and then a decay. And it would also inform like frequency content too. I also thought I could go a few steps further. So I had, the uh, sometimes I would have the data actually in in certain segments of the piece, I would have it inform the spatialization. So, so where the sounds are at any given point in time would be determined by uh, what was going on in the leaf. And there are two moments in the piece in particular where uh, you might be able to hear it, where it sounds like you have like little photons of light, just like pinging off like some sort of, surface of course it's harder to hear the surround effect in stereo um and by the way this piece is meant for an eight channel surround sound uh, setup but the idea was is that the, the photons would kind of converge on this like central area and would like hit that central area and then and that and then part of the energy of that f- so-called photon would be absorbed by this f- hypothetical object and then uh, it would like, like what was left would be passed through. So it was like basically waste material and part of it would be reflected back. And I would try to like, you know, ac- account for Doppler shifts and things like that. And, and I'm also thinking like, well, if something loses energy when it's being transmitted, then it should, uh, it should also like, you know, there should be more aspects of the sound that would Im- imply that velocity itself has lessened. So I, I took all of that into account. I could go on and on about what I did with the data, but there is one, another section in particular where I had, it was about six minutes in dealing with the movement of the chloroplasts through the leaf of like the wild type and then the mutants. And it was only a minute worth of audio, but it's still probably my favorite part of the piece simply because it took me over a month to compose. Uh, Well, um, over a month to program because I had to, it, it took actually like 10 Almost twenty thousand lines of code to be able to encode everything properly.
0: Jeez. And I still
1: remember there were I I was uh like part of my uh time at the Seamus National Conference in twenty fifteen was me just in my hotel room coding, trying to get it done on <laughs> time. So it's uh yeah. So I know I've I've been talking uh, a great deal about how I wrote the piece, but I guess just something to take away is that really, except for the occasional sampled found sound, like a I did a pizza pan and, and like I also sampled, I like a wind chime that a coworker gave me back when I was living in Japan and I sampled that. Uh, but most of the sounds are actually synthesized and were um, uh, derived from the data itself.
0: So you, he- mostly made it through computer programming and coding language Mm -hmm. and so yeah synthesized sound all right yeah that's that was what i was wondering when i was listening to it like how are these sounds being made and um where is it where are you getting them from was it all completely through electronics laptops like computers things that i don't know too much about
1: (laughs) well don't worry because listening back to that piece, there are sounds that I don't think I could actually replicate very easily again. I mean, that, I, that was part wow. of the magic of her, of her data is that it led me to do things with sound that I probably would never have done anyway. So, I see. Uh, yeah. And so I'd have to go back. In fact, I'd have to find her data again to even see. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, Oh, and actually there one more sound that I sampled that I, I feel compelled to, to share. Uh, Cause it does have a, uh, significance, uh, especially for Kat herself, because uh, she was insistent that I sampled sounds uh, from, her, from the electron microscope that she would use. And while a lot of the sounds of the microscope really couldn't be captured very well, at least not with the equipment that I had, something that was able to be captured very well was the beeping of the buttons. So um, every now and then you might hear a button beeping, and that came directly from the microscope from the laboratory. Uh, where oh wow happened so you
0: recorded live this beeping from the microscope mm-hmm. and then incorporated into the piece yep
1: yeah, yeah, as she was working oh. so
0: oh wow all right there are no instruments or anything like that involved
1: no no, no. sampled instruments in, in this piece right yeah
0: and, yeah and, uh, i mean it, it's it's sorry? sound it's like to me, it sounded a bit like uh, something you might hear in like a sci-fi movie or something. Just all these kind of in in a maybe a very mechanical world of like industrious industrialized world, perhaps in the future. That's just what I imagined when I when I was listening to this.
1: Well, that makes me very happy because that was the very yeah. kind of affect I was shooting for. Well, definitely achieved it. <laughs> Thank you. And <laughs> yeah. uh yeah, and so far this actually so this piece can be found if anyone's list, uh, interested in listening to it, um it's available on the music from Seamus, tw- Volume 26 uh anthology from It basically it's like the pieces from the 2016 National Conference that uh people uh liked. So
0: Nice. Yeah. If the turtle jak bring up Virgo 3C273 which is a piece that we worked on together and Mm
1: -hmm. in 2020
0: right before the start of the pandemic um well I was the cellist for this so I I can speak from that point of view but um as a composer what uh what was your First of all, yeah, how did you decide on this topic for for a piece for solo cello and live electronics? Um
1: So, why did I decide on you mean like why did I choose an astronomically themed topic? Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> I think I've I've been really fascinated with astronomy since my undergraduate days when I uh, took it as basically like, I had to take a science credit still. And, uh, and so I chose astronomy and, uh, yeah. And there's certain astronomical, like for me, I'm, I'm, uh, well, I should also say this, another thing that really primed my interest in just the outer space, and the universe at large is, um, when I lived in Japan, I lived in, I didn't live in a city. I didn't live in Tokyo or Kyoto, Kobe. I, I lived, I didn't even live in a in a town. I lived in a village. I lived in a tiny mm-hmm. little mountain village uh, where there just was no air pollution. There was no light pollution. In fact, it, it was high in, up enough in the mountains that the Japanese government put an astronomical observatory in my village oh, uh okay. so because it's just so easy to get just amazing views and and just walking outside of my house on a cloudless night at like 6 p.m and looking up and just seeing like sites that i didn't think was possible outside of a planetarium uh like i would see I, like like it wasn't just stars. Like I would see like clouds of like, you know, purple and like, like nebulas and things. And I just, it's like, that is the sky that like that most of humanity admired, like, like for all of history and prehistory, it's really only been recently when we just have street lights everywhere and lit buildings and our concrete jungles that they've it's just become invisible to us. But Um, but seeing it just was like really kind of, uh, it was a truly spiritually deep experience. And so because of that, I've liked to, from time to time, uh, touch upon certain astronomical phenomena that I find particularly interesting. And one that has uh, struck me as, uh, really, um, quite fascinating is this, uh, is the, uh, quasi stellar object or the quasar which is not a star but it 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 seems like a star from our vantage point but these are like just like massive incredibly like massive astronomical entities that just burn way brighter than our sun burns and um, they're really quite filled with like devastating energy but from afar, from the safety of of Earth, they're actually quite beautiful to behold, and uh, I just thought that in it was just something that I felt I wanted to to capture in a piece and you know since I was working with you on a piece for cello and electronics, I thought that would have, that would be a fantastic opportunity
0: yeah, um, is there something about the cello that that evokes that? um idea and connection to maybe nature astronomy
1: yeah i think so i I think uh well the cello itself is just i mean i don't need to tell you this it's particularly timberly rich and there's just something about the cello in particularly i well in a few registers one being kind of the uh around the second octave of the cello, you know, when it gets a little wolfy, um, Mm -hmm. like I I feel like it can, it, it it has, even though it's not considered a particularly, uh, strong part of the cello range with regard to like expressive potential, I think it, it does express a certain kind of melancholy very well. And, uh, likewise, I feel like just an octave above it, uh, you know, conveys, can convey a sense of longing above that. Like, like, you know, uh, it could be terror. It could be, you know, just heightened anxiety. It could be ecstasy. Um, and, and a lot of these emotions I ascribe to the quasar, you know, something that is really, a, just, it, it's a, this incredibly, uh, volatile, mass it's it's it can be very destructive but from afar it's it's beautiful but it's you know it's also kind of lonely you know it's it's you know we can see it from so far away because of how incredibly massive and 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 hot and brightly it burns um but you know i i to me it just it, it it it's a kind of you know sad beauty that i think the cello can evoke very well
0: yeah definitely The cello has this, uh, I think, sorrowful, longing quality to it. And how about the electronics part of it? Um, Did you write the cello portion first and then add it on the electronics part afterwards? Or was it a parallel process?
1: Well, the electronics component of this piece actually has a very interesting history because you may recall that Uh, the initial uh, vision for the recital in which it played was quite different. And so I was thinking (laughs) for a long time, I was writing for a different program, uh, one that Uh might, you know, you know, (laughs) celebrate more like music that draws upon more popular idioms. And so originally this was going to be a piece that uh, would harken back to a very brief period in my musical life where I had aspirations to become a psychedelic trance DJ and
0: oh, I was yes. originally
1: going to be incorporating, <laughs> which is why, like I, I made some drastic changes to <laughs> the cello part toward the end. Cause I was right. going, it was going to sound, well, there were parts that actually were the same, like, like the, um like the cadenza was always going to be the way it was. The, the interior section with the pizzicato that really didn't change, but, but like what you might consider like the a and the a prime was very different than what I had intended. And, uh, and so when, when I discovered that I was going to be a sharing a concert with a crumb and Sarriaho, I I thought, yeah, it's gotta be a, and you know, I'm glad though, that it worked out this way because I feel like, compared to the original drafts and what I was initially doing with electronics, I think this became a much stronger piece. Like I I would go back through like my old manuscripts of the first version and just kind of cringe, you know, it just, it wasn't, you know, (laughs) I, I, I think I, I hinted enough at my maybe not so much psychedelic trance in the last version, but still in my interest in more popular, uh trends in music at least as of the early 2000s in the final version and it's still and i think it actually works out even much better in depicting how i feel a quasar should be depicted um without relying
0: on like a, a techno
1: backbeat or anything
0: <laughs> yeah well we'll come back to the psychedelic trance part because i'm very interested in that but um yeah for the listeners uh, this this performance kind of was a race to the end (laughs) and oh gosh i um i don't know how we pulled that off but yeah it also went through a lot of different uh reconfigurations from the initial concept of more of a exactly what you said a poppy sort of with many um popular elements we also thought about putting a Shostakovich cello concerto on the program and reworking that plus your original composition. And then that changed. And we had Sarriyaho's Se Papillon on there, which is just pure solo cello, um, no electronics. And also with George Crump's um, Void Balanea with uh, flute and piano, prepared piano um, with all these effects, Uh, and mics but there was also no electronics in that just a lot of extended techniques and then yeah so it it went through a lot of um let's say transformations um and (laughs) until the last moment we were really scrambling but yeah it, it it was a very memorable recital from my end
1: it was i you know it it for me too it 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 was very touch and go. And there were times just, very. I mean, just days before the, the yes. recital where I was <laughs> really wondering, like, are we going to make it? And we got to, the, yeah. I still, remember, we got to the point where we were able, cause we only had half an hour before, yeah. like from when the person who had the, the concert hall before us, Left like they cleaned up, right? And we had to set up all the electronics too and the preparations yes. for the crumb. We got that to the point where you were able to start playing within half an hour.
0: That's oh my gosh, yeah, to, it was really.
1: I, I still don't, I still don't understand how we were, were able to do that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it's like uh, that's like an hour and a half worth of setup, in my opinion, but we got it, it's yeah, it's like down to it. I don't and, know.
0: That was, um. Yeah. I mean, normally for a performance, you would be worried about the playing, but I was completely not worried about the playing. I was just hoping, mm-hmm. like, no cables start to go off, and no, um, the technical setup would would go smoothly, and nothing start to defunction. De- and oh oof, yeah, I remember yeah. There were
1: issues with like. Like sometimes we get a good mixer and sometimes we get the bad
0: mixer that (laughs) wouldn't
1: sound and uh, it was just luck of the draw. Which one we would get on any given day?
0: (laughs) The crazy cables. I remember like the audience was already walking in and we were still fixing the cables like on stage. Wow. Yeah, that was that was uh, it. Was just there was a lot of electricity in the room (laughs) for sure.
1: I couldn't have said it better myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it went off without a hit, actually. Somehow. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle. Yeah. And back to the psychedelic chess DJ thing. Um, yeah. You you were at some point considering a career in, in uh, DJing. DJ. Very briefly. Wow.
1: But yeah, I uh it was back also in my Japan days. And uh, the interest stemmed from uh, actually a friend of mine who was getting into the practice. Uh, he and I were friends from Florida State University back in our when we were getting our bachelor's degrees. And we both were uh, accepted on the JET program to go over to Japan and teach English. Uh, he was placed in a city, Kakugawa, in uh, the Kansai region and um i was placed like way far away uh but i would still go and visit him from time to time and uh yeah like he got me into listening to infected mushroom which i really quite admire especially some of the early mushroom. work
0: yeah <laughs> is
1: that
0: a is that a dj or
1: yeah it's it's an israeli uh duo so
0: Oh, that. yeah, they
1: both they both DJ, they both produce the the music and um and also I got into some you know work by like Japanese based artists like uh, um, Sakagibara Itaku. and uh and yeah I just I something just clicked with me whereas like other kinds of electronic dance music I, I would enjoy or listen to but but in, on an intellectual level it just wasn't as stimulating like listening to the you know classical mushroom album and and hearing like some like fugato like some like you know some actual some counterpoint in trance like I just it's just something that I didn't usually associate with the genre, so like we would go to like stores in Osaka and Kobe and just uh um play just 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 like mess around with analog synths and uh and digital synths too, and probably really annoyed the the shopkeepers, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I thought like this, that kind of music would be in, music. I'd be really interested in pursuing and I probably would have, um, if I uh-huh. hadn't left Japan the very next year in, in returned to the States and then decided that I actually truly wanted to get back into, um, uh, pursuing a career in, well, at the time, acoustic like contemporary classical composition. So,
0: mm-hmm. Did you play with like uh, the records, like, you know, how how we envision sort of the stereotypical DJ idea? Yeah.
1: Sampling from, yeah, I, no, I never got to that point. I actually would just um, produce original compositions just using um, analog uh-huh. synths and some samples I would just uh, generate myself, but, but no, I, I never actually mm-hmm. like DJ using samples of others music though. It's still, I mean, it's a very common practice and, something that I, I yeah. wanted to do. Um, but again, like I said, it was just very brief, but it was something that I was really, really interested in for a few months. And it's still like, you know, it, and I'll say this bef- before, I started work on Virgo back when it was still going to have more side trance elements, I right. got back in touch with my friend who's now a software engineer in Colorado. And, uh, and, and he, well, he hasn't anymore now that he, you know, he's married and now he has a kid. And I don't I don't think he DJs anymore, but for like a over a decade he he DJed as a pointy deity in Japan and the US. And uh I just asked him and I'm not gonna dox him so I'll use his stage name, but I said pointy. Just can you know, I I've been kind of out of the loop of with side trance for the past decade or so. Uh do you have a listening list and so he's he actually supplied me with like like eight hours of side trance and so i just keep listening to that as you know for wow, inspiration eight for, hours. for virgo 3c 273 oh, yeah
0: it was, it was, yeah damn it was so enjoyable. you really got eight like hours? into the zone of
1: it yeah <laughs> i did I, mean, I did
0: yeah well I, I i don't know just throwing it out there but maybe one day there could be a a different version, like a second version of Virgo, where it, is, it does incorporate the psychedelic, um, trance music elements. And that would be really cool, like a second phase for the Quasar Star or something like this.
1: Oh, I, I love the way you put it. A <laughs> second phase for the Quasar. <laughs> I, uh, well, you know, actually, after the concert, like literally an hour or so, like, uh, on the way to our after party. I was thinking of that very mm-hmm. thing. Like I, I wanted to, um, just, but just use like, um, samples of your playing, but to make like a side trans version and, and it wouldn't be, <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to have like a, a compromise. Like I still didn't like the quasi side trans version that I was going to write. I'm glad I didn't do that. Yeah, But, but having like a, like a version that's legitimately like that, right. like, Fits into the Psy trance uh, genre. I just thought would be really yeah. cool. Um, so yeah. yeah, that that's something that uh, yeah it may be forthcoming in the near future.
0: Totally. Like really get like it can go into another world altogether of like really going deep in there. But yeah, taking another life of its own, like a second mm-hmm. life. Of the a second days. life, yeah. Yeah. same year in 2020 with virgo is formally unannounced uh Mm -hmm. which some assembly required uh recorded Mm -hmm. um for horn trombone and piano um yeah for for me this this piece was reminded me a lot of brass bands and big band Mm -hmm. um oh really was there some of that yeah yeah well, I didn't really, I
1: wasn't going for the, the big band uh, approach, but maybe it has okay. to do with some of the quartal harmonies in there. I could see that yeah. um, being reminiscent of brass bands for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, no, actually, this piece also had, an, well, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm starting to repeat myself. I keep saying it has an interesting genesis, which of, which of my pieces doesn't have an interesting <laughs> genesis. But but uh, so, yeah, this piece was commissioned from me by this, uh, ensemble who wanted to, uh, well, they were looking for, f- uh, Florida composers to re- to commission specifically. They, uh, yeah. And when I had mentioned that predominantly, I write for instrument electronics now that they were immediately latched on to this, um, possibility of incorporating electronics into their, uh, their concerts. And, uh, so yeah, I wrote the piece and, around that same time, I actually, in fact, it wasn't long after my first trip to Switzerland where I came down with probably the nastiest case of influenza I've ever suffered from oh, well. where like I had like um, fevers that exceeded like, you know, 40 degrees Celsius, 104 Fahrenheit. And, and it actually ended up, uh, causing issues with my eyesight, um, long-term issues that I'm still struggling with today. Uh, I not agree. as much as I, I had been before. Like there, there were months where I just, I could barely see like, just, just like opening my eyes was, um, and trying to look at things was an exercise in futility. Cause I would just consistently see double or quadruple and, um, and through enough training, I've been able to fix that for the most part, but it still takes a little more effort than I would like. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a really unexpected, unannounced intrusion of something in my life that uh, ended up fundamentally just changing the the way I, I lived, especially for a few months. So, you know, then I got the commission and I got much better again. And, uh, but I just, I thought I wanted to write a piece Well, actually I started writing the piece without it in mind, but as the piece took shape, I realized it just kind of seemed to parallel that part of my life. So I decided to kind of run with it. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I wrote a piece that begins very conventionally and, and it's a piece for, as you mentioned, piano, horn, trombone, and electronics, but, the electronics really don't have much of a role to play in the piece um, for like the first half of the piece, like, like at the very beginning, they're not there at all. And then the pianos kind of by itself in the B section of, and by the way, I, I did structure it intentionally as a kind of a Rondo and in the B section, then they finally appear. And then it's like overpowered again, the return of the refrain and the A uh, and it kind of proceeds as a rondo would with the occasional aberration from the electronics until after the interior c section, we go back to the refrain. The refrain begins as one might expect, and then there's the sudden like glitch in the system where. Suddenly the electronics just burst forth. The players don't know what to do. In fact, I even in the score, I, I notate that I want them to just improvise chaotically for 25 seconds. And then, and then we get to the just electronics alone and then it glitches out. And then suddenly the, the instrumentalists find themselves in a brand new soundscape and, uh, like every now and then the horn like well the hornist begins by just like testing the waters of some just occasional like f sharps and and the electronics would respond so it's kind of a call and response between the brass and the electronics and then sometimes the electronics would lash out and along and that would be enhanced by like the pianist glissandoing at the uh the lowest octave of the piano and uh and so it's just like the the electronics are now kind of a dominating presence and by the end both the um the the living like human players and the electronics find a kind of equilibrium uh but at, by that point the rondo really now technically the rondo is complete uh just the the final in- iterations of b and the refrain final refrain are just very heavily transformed but I kind of consider it a failed rondo of sorts because it doesn't really go back to the beginning. It's not doesn't feel like a round dance. It's like the rondo hits a brick wall and and now things aren't going to be the same and everybody's just gonna have to has, have to deal with the with this new variable that's intruded on their uh their lives. And so hence the title formally unannounced.
0: So it's 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 almost like the players versus the electronics.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like the live beings versus the, uh, artificial beings.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, the, the live beings just resign themselves to the fact that they're going to be accompanied by this artificial construct, this, uh, this aberration going forward, which is why the ending is kind of, you know, resigned and subdued. It ends actually uh, harmonically. It's, it's a half step lower than how it began, like the piece begins. And, but I also make sure like the, the electronics and the performers by the end actually um, seem to blend better. It's like, then they really become more of a cohesive whole, even if neither are particularly happy about it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so they find some kind of uh, compromise among themselves yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tale of the man versus the machine that's right <laughs> yeah How about now? Um, I know you have Chime Festival coming up and of mm-hmm. course also Camp, which is happening in uh, March in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What else are you, what are you, what are you working on now? And what's, what are you expecting in the next while?
1: Well, the uh, projects that I'm working on now that I'm pretty much in both instances I'm in the part creation phase. So like I I've just finished the two pieces are, well, one is the fifth piece in my entropic atelier series for chaos flute V, as I had mentioned before. And uh, the other piece is actually a piece that was commissioned by the McCormick duo, which is made up of Unmiko, who's the president and uh, one of the co-founders of camp and the legendary percussionist Bob McCormick. The piece I'm writing for them is entitled Chronometric Echoes in Liminal Spaces. It's um, a piece that utilizes uh, this idea of the liminal space, which when I first came to know about this phenomenon, which seemed to crop up, quite a bit during the pandemic. I don't really remember hearing about it in the past, but uh, but the phenomenon itself is something I've experienced several times where uh, you have this, like this physical space, this location that is typically a place that you would expect there to be human habitation, like a classroom or a cafeteria, a playground, you know, that's usually in a building, sometimes outside of a building. Um, And it's often at night and it's des- completely deserted. Uh, and oftentimes like these like images, like fo- photography that captures this idea of liminal space will specifically exclude like exits like doors or even windows. Like you'll see hallways that are just dimly lit and there's the feeling of no exit. So you feel like, it It's almost like a it's an uncanny representation of reality. It's like it's it's a place that should have humanity or human life, but it's devoid of it um in fact, as I'm talking now it makes sense why it would be become popular during the pandemic because we yeah. had we had many of those places that were quite literally just True. you know abandoned that that these are these buildings yes. that expected to accommodate human life and and didn't. And they become really kind of freaky. In fact, some people, you know, are really sensitive and, um, uh, to, to such, uh, kinds of spaces and they feel like a sense of anxiety or overwhelming dread when they look at them or if they're in these spaces and they, um, so yeah, I, I became fascinated by the phenomenon and decided to explore that in music. So in my piece, I have uh, Unmi is going to be um, utilizing actually solely inside the piano techniques. So, and I'm going to be using like like ebows and things to kind of generate a uh, a sinusoidal like pure but still empty kind of a timbre. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she's also going to be along with uh, strumming things and, and picking at the strings using the ebow. Uh, she's going to be, uh, playing a, uh, keyboard recorder, uh, which, um, she's played like for the camp concert and she can really elicit this sense of pure terror from, from that instrument. It's fantastic. Um, and then, you know, I'll I'll have Bob with percussion, uh, playing a lot on like Cortales, vibraphone doing a lot of bowed vibraphone to like uh, complement yeah. the ebow use um i'm having both performers use a lot of super ball mallets because you can really like like especially on drums or even in the piano you can get a lot of um uncanny like unheimlich sounds for, uh, f- from mm-hmm. using a super ball mallet and then uh and there's going to be electronics too this time the electronics aren't going to be reproduced through speakers. They're going to be reproduced. uh, Well, it will be through speakers. I mean, you have to use some kind of a transducer, but instead of loudspeakers, they're going to be uh, fed through these small transducers that I'm going to be attaching to like discarded crates and cardboard boxes, things like things that people would typically like cast aside or, or like litter, like, like waste, that you might mm-hmm. ex- see in these liminal spaces, um, and so the 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 process sound of the performers will be emanating from these objects on the stage. Um, also, going to have f- uh, fluorescent lighting, as uh, fluorescent lighting is a is a major component to lim- liminal spaces. And finally, the, the, the whole stage, the whole auditorium will be dark, um, but you'll have like a, a Uh, a a fluorescent light on stage but both performers and their instruments are going to be completely obfuscated by a projection screen so they'll be behind the screen because the idea is you don't want to see any humans and what's going to be projected on the projection screen in fact i want to if i don't know if i can make this happen but if i can record it onto like uh Nine millimeter film or something. I could use like a an old projector and and the the noise from the old film projectors, like the the, the clicking and things. Like I I feel would really lend yeah. much to the atmosphere. But it, if not, I'll just use a digital projector. That's fine. But I want to project uh, like uh, liminal spaces. And you know, I'll um, in fact soon I'm going to be going around the University of Chicago at night because uh, you can get some really gothic and kind of creepy liminal space potential in uh, the buildings here for sure. Uh, and then I'm just going to project those as the piece progresses. So that's been, um, in fact, I started that piece last year. It's just been with all of the resources that are going into the piece, it's just taking a, a long time to finally bring together. But I'm finally at that stage where everything's coming together uh, in time, yeah, uh, so it could be performed
0: will you see the um because you mentioned that the performers will be behind screens, mm-hmm. but will you see like shadows and outlines of the performers or I'm not hoping not
1: i'm I'm hoping that they're okay. it's going to be acousmatic in a way that their role in this is going to be completely obfuscated, but but we'll know they're there. Mm-hmm. And that I'm hoping right. will add to the feeling of dread.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, in the moment you mentioned deserted hallways and I just immediately connected to like uh, Japanese horror films. Um, I mean, those are frightening, <laughs> 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 but sounds, yes, sounds like are. a very yeah impactful piece. I'm sure it will be making a Thank statement. You. Yeah. And this will be in camp uh, in March.
1: This will not be premiered at Campground. Ah. Uh, this is still going to be oh, no. uh, in the future. Um, we haven't decided on a specific premiere date, um, but it'll probably be with one of the other pieces that they've premiered. Um, yeah, th- it, this is all uh, part of the this commissioning project they had, or they they're going that's ongoing, and ultimately all of their commissioned pieces will land on an album. That they're going to be recording, um, oh, but they're great. but they also premiere like in person all of the pieces. So um, it might be it'll probably be premiered for logistical reasons in Florida, but um, I'm hoping to get it, uh, you know, to make it portable enough to to take it on the road as well.
0: Yeah, certainly exciting. Well, Ben, we've come to the end. Um, Thanks for coming on today and talk to us about your works and your inspirations and how, how you go about creating your compositions, electro-acoustically or acoustically. Thank you.
1: Hey, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: It's been a pleasure for me as well.